0: Church. All right, good morning. Welcome. All right, I like that. Good morning. Morning. Welcome to uh, One Hope Church. Um, glad you're here to worship with, with us, especially if you're visiting uh, with us this morning. Uh, we're continuing our study through the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 17. Uh, and this morning we get one of our favorite passages because um, it's about Paul. Um, sharing the good news of Jesus in the city of Athens. Now, that's not to be confused um, with the, the Athens city that we live in. This is Athens, Greece. But it is a city that our city is named after. Um, and there's you know, some, some reasons uh, I think why they, they picked that name. And, and one is that um, Athens was a, a place of, of, of learning, a place of philosophy, a place where people would talk about you know, ideas um, and our city is is that way, um, as we have uh, the state's major university, you know, here and um, many other places of learning um, as well. So we want to see in this Paul share um, Jesus with very philosophically, you know, minded people, uh, people who are thinkers. And so uh, I think this is a helpful lesson. For us this morning about how he went, you know, how he went about that, and there's some things that we can learn from that. You know, this this happened, you know, not 2,000 quite 2,000 years ago, but there are principles in how he shares that we can use, you know, today um, that are going to be just as effective as what he used then. And so we'll look at that and um, talk about this some this morning. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll be- begin in Acts chapter 17 and verse 16. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for the privilege to come here this morning to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray that your word would go forward um, in our hearts, that you would teach us from it, that you would help us um, as we seek to share your love and your gospel with others. And so, God, um, please change anything in us that needs to change and help us to be uh, people who share uh, your light in the world. We thank you. Uh, Just so much that you gave Jesus for us, because we certainly didn't deserve it. Uh, But that your love for us is so vast, so powerful, um, that Jesus would go to the cross on our behalf. And so, Jesus, we thank you that you loved us that much. And it's in your precious name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. So let's read the first few verses. It says, now Paul waited for them at Athens. Now, remember, this is he's waiting for Silas and Timothy. Paul um, had to flee from Berea because people had been sent from Thessalonica uh, to to try to capture him or persecute him or kill him. Um, And so he goes on to Athens and he's waiting for Silas and Timothy. Uh, It says his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. And therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered, encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? And others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Okay, let's stop there for a moment and set a couple of things in mind. First, you know, he's waiting, um, and, and perhaps he didn't have this great intention to do a lot of ministry until his partners in ministry came with him, but he's, you know, came to him, but he's provoked when he sees all this worship of idols and, and all of this, you know, wrong headed thinking that is going on. And he sees the destructive you know, power that that is um, in the city of Athens. And so there, it says, therefore he reasoned with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers. That's the, the converts to Judaism that were Gentiles. Um, he, wor- he reasoned with them in the synagogue. And so unlike at Philippi, where there weren't enough Jewish people there to have a synagogue, there are in, in Athens. And so he's going to start there. You know, he starts, um, with people who are, are closer to the truth, but don't have it fully, you know, the full revelation of that yet. And there's also a high probability that, you know, the the Judaism here that's being taught in the synagogue is being somewhat influenced by the culture that it that it's in. Now, it's not you know something that's clearly stated, but I, I think that might line up with some of the provocation that is in his spirit. That everybody is being you know affected um, by the atmosphere about what truth is. Something to think about. Um, That, you know, our culture is influential. And so we have to, and if you don't recognize the influence your culture is having on you, then that can be a very dangerous thing indeed, because wrongheaded ideas can come and and slip in to the mix. And so he reasoned with them. And in the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there. So he wasn't content just to wait around, you know, from Saturday to Saturday to, to talk in the synagogue. Um, But throughout the the days in the marketplace, he would talk with whoever he could, who happened to be there. It was a public place and a a place where he could encounter people. Um, You know, imagine most everybody had to go to the market, you know, to buy things at some point. And so he could encounter a lot of of people there and to share with them. So he went where the people were. Uh, That's a good thing for us, too. Not always waiting for people to come to us, but to go where people are um, to share with them. And says says, certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. Um, And they said, you know, what does this babbler want to say? He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, let's be very clear that that is his message. We need to know that up front. You know, even as we get into this kind of message he gives. Um, you know, in a public sort of way, it has this foundation that he has been talking to them about Jesus and the resurrection. That's the heart of his message: is Jesus and the resurrection. Um, that should be the heart of our message, you know, as well. You know, we're about Jesus first and foremost. Um, the rest is is the the outworkings of that. And so we we have to have that priority on Jesus and his resurrection. So it says certain um, Epicurean Stoic philosophers, let's talk, actually, we're going to take those in opposite order. Let's talk about the Stoics first. Um, they were started by the, by the philosopher Zeno about 500 years prior to this scene that we have here in Athens. In um, that time, it was like the heyday, the prime time, you know, of Greece um, and, you know, the Greek Empire. Uh, and so, you know, this was, that came out of, of, of that framework. At this point in history, Athens is still an important city. Um, it's still an important city of learning, but it's not, it, you know, some of its, if it's glory, if you would, is starting to fade away. It's not everything that it used to be. You know, Rome has overtaken that, you know, place. And the Roman Empire, you know, which overtook uh, the Greek Empire, has has now, you know, dominates, you know, the, the scene. Now, yet it's still very important and influential because the Romans weren't super original when it came to their, you know, philosophies and their gods and all of that sort of stuff. They just kind of took it from the Greeks, um, changed the names of things, and, you know, proceeded, you know, on. Um, so the, the Greeks were kind of the foundation of all of that. Now, that word stoic, how we use that today, it's still, um, you know, somewhat, you know, accurate. We talk about people who are stoic. You might say you know, as an example, you know, he was such a stoic person that he didn't even cry at the funeral of his wife. Okay, a stoic person. It still has that same connotation of somebody that doesn't allow their emotions to have, you know, influence over them. It's kind of looked as like the emotions are, are weakness. And so if you have complete control over your emotions, then you are no longer, you know, weak, but you are a, a strong you know, person, um, you know, there's a problem here in terms of a barrier of coming to to God that the Stoics would have because there's a there's a lot of um, of self-pride that comes with this sort of of discipline and self-sufficiency um, in the Stoic you know mind. Um, their ideas about God is that God is like this sort of, you know, fire or breath or force uh, that emanates throughout, um, you know, the universe. But there's not the idea of God being, you know, personal, uh, you know, and, 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 and that sort of way, you know, with us. Uh, and so they kind of had that idea. Now, the, uh, the Epicureans, uh, they're a little bit different, but we use that word differently today than was used back then. When we talk about Epicurean, you know, sort of things, we talk about food and, and wine and the enjoyment of things. And our thought about that is, you know, kind of, um, you know, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. But that's not what these people actually believed and, and lived. Okay, that's that's not it. They did believe in pursuing pleasure, but for them, pleasure was defined as the absence of pain. And so you sought not to have Pain in your life, um, but Epicurus, you know, said and you know he taught that you know if you just had bread and water, you should be content with that. It was a it was a minimalistic sort of um, philosophy, you know the and and you know personal lack of pain and of safety was of a very high value. And so if being powerful and you know using that powerful made you safer and free of pain, then that was a good thing. But If that use of power and seeking to obtain that power actually made enemies for you and made you vulnerable and made it likely that somebody would want to end your life, well, then that wasn't a good use of that. It didn't have, because the end of it is what's important. The end is a a life that, that has a lack of pain. And so you kind of take the minimal route to that approach. And so everything is Kind of um, weighed in that regard in terms of decisions of life, so it was a little bit more minimalistic doesn 't have that you know thought of just you know drunken parties um, that we would think about it you know if we, if, as we think that they thought about it, if that makes sense you know, that 's one of those that 's been throughout history kind of uh, changed so you can just keep in mind the stoic is about the same, and the epicurean has um, That idea has changed a lot um, over time. But what's key here is that Epicurus taught, quote, death is nothing to us. For that which has been dissolved into its elements experiences no sensations. And that which has no sensation is nothing to us. So his thought was, this is all all that there is, is your life here. Try to avoid all the pain here that you can, but don't worry, because when you die because there is no afterlife of any kind, you will have no pain then okay so but there's but you got to be clear here the Epicureans did not believe in any sort of you know next life now, the Stoics on that subject believe that you know yes, there could be a next life for those who had attained a certain status in terms of their own self-power and, and that being displayed in that control you know, over their emotions, that they could have a power within themselves that could go on beyond them. But it was a self-sufficient sort of thing that a person would you know, obtain over their, their lifetime through their own self-will um, is, is the idea with that. Uh, and so, you know, again that pride. That pride that comes in there that if you're a if you're a sage, if you can make it to that point, you know, then yes, you could persist, you know, beyond your physical body's, you know, death. But everybody else in the world is a slave, you know, is a slave to their emotions and will kind of like the Epicureans thought, will cease to be altogether because they have not progressed far enough. They are not powerful enough. On their own, you see, there's a lot of pride there, a whole lot of pride there uh, that could be an obstacle to coming to know the true and living God. And we know this because our scripture tells us, um, you know, that God um, resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so, it's difficult uh, for those who are proudful to come to the Lord. Uh, but now, they want to know what he what he's teaching. What he's saying Uh, So in verse 19 And it says And they brought him to the Areopagus Saying We know that this new doctrine Is of which you speak For you're bringing some strange things to our ears May we know But this new doctrine is of which you speak For you'll bring strange things to our ears Therefore we want to know what these things mean For all the Athenians And the foreigners who were there Spent their time and nothing else But either to tell or to hear Some new thing um, now, this lets you know that they're doing okay economically because they have the time to sit around and to talk about all the new ideas. So those who live there and the people from that aren't uh, from Greece who are coming there have the means and the resources uh, from which they have some, some, some time on their hands you know, to, to kind of hear any new thing that comes into town. So they take him to this... Um, This hill outside of the city where there's, you know, kind of like their Supreme Court um, would hold important cases for trials, particularly having to do if there was, you know, a homicide um, is is where that would take place. But here we're going to have, you know, Paul in a certain sense being on trial, not in a judicial way that he can, you know, he's going to get in trouble, but in a a trial of, of, you know, saying what this teaching is that they're then going to judge as they, Hear it, whether they view it as worthy of accepting or whether they're going to reject it. Okay, so he is somewhat on trial here. Um, You know, his ideas are on trial, at least. And so, in verse 22, it says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Arpegas and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship. I even found an altar with this inscription To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one or one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. And therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So that's his message, or the summary of his message. That's the heart of it that we have there that he gives. And there's some things from that you know, that we can definitely learn from. And so let's go through and kind of see his line of reasoning, uh, beginning back in verse 22, when he says, you know, men of Athens are people, you know, that's not really say gender specific, but, you know, he's saying to the people of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. And so in this, it's somewhat of a compliment. It's not, it doesn't have to take it like fully as a compliment, but I think they would probably take that as a compliment at least. Like, yes we are you know they would acknowledge that that this that paul says and so he starts with something that you know they're going to you know agree to that can be taken in a complimentary uh you know sort of way that's not a bad way to start you know when you're having a conversation with someone just about whatever it is you know you even if you have a big disagreement you normally don't want to start with like you're wrong and now I'm going to tell you you're wrong you know i mean you 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 can be a little bit more nuanced than that, a little bit more developed than that in, in gaining a hearing. And so he's, he's going to do this, and he's going to tell them a little bit of a story is what he does next. Because he says, you know, I see you're very religious, for I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship. And so he's telling them there, you know, I'm paying attention to your culture. I'm, ta- I'm paying attention to your traditions. I'm paying attention to what's important to you. Okay, now that that gets some attention there. And he says what he found. I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So he quickly moves from this, you know, compliment to, you know, I, I I, I have a perception, an understanding of where you're, you know, where you're coming from and what it is that you believe and what you think. And, and this is going to be played out a little bit more as we go on. And then he, he presents in this kind of third part, or the second part, there's a, there's a problem. The unknown God. So he uses what's in their culture as his starting point to share Jesus with them. Okay. So he uses this. And then he says, there's a solution. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. So now he set it up. There's this problem to the unknown God. Him you worship without knowing, this is the one I want to talk to you about. And so he's setting the stage of, you've got this problem of of a, a lack of understanding, and I've got this answer to that question that you've had. To the unknown God, and then he begins to define God, and because this is important, because the people who he's he's speaking with have different definitions of God, but they've got their own definitions of God, and so now he has to define God based on who God really is. You know, and, and, and some of that in his definition is going to be contrary to their definitions. Okay, but he's not afraid to do that. He says, "God, who made the world and everything in it." Since he is Lord in heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped within men's hands as if he needed anything, since he gives life to all, breath, and all things. He gives to all life, breath, and all things. And so, you know, on some of this they're going to agree with. On, you know, the Stoics are going to agree that, you know, this what they call God, though not personal, there is this there is this um, force um, in the universe that's higher and greater than all else. This you know, thing that they call pneuma, which is, you know, and we used in the New Testament, the followers of Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit um, is kind of what they just used to describe this force um, in the universe. OK, so there's some he can play on a commonality there, but he's got to give it a fuller expression of what that means. And then he tells them that the the outcome of this definition of God, since he made everything in it, he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He's bigger than this. He doesn't need human beings. This is important because, you know, in these philosophies, it's kind of, that they've they've come up with, man has usurped God's space and is kind of like the the end of all. Like the hot the, in their minds, you know they're they're the the chief end of themselves. Okay, and so he has to set up God as being self sufficient. That God made us for His. For his pleasure uh, and to share himself, you know, with us. But he, in fact, doesn't need us. He could have continued on eternity past to eternity future without us and been okay. <laughs> He'd been just fine. Now, that may be a little bit of an affront to us because, you know, we like to think, you know, we're, we're some kind of awesome but god in fact does not need me in order for him to be god and for him to be okay with who he is but he does out of his love he did want to share himself you know with us but we do have to understand you know who god is and who we are and there is an order to that you know and we want to kind of you know and we can be tempted toward these philosophies where we move up next to god or even above god in the practical things of life you know and philosophically we may have the right ideas philosophically theologically you know taking a test and putting it down on paper yes god is self sufficient yes god is higher than i am but in daily life and practice, we often live like we are equal to or above God. That God exists to grant us our desires and wishes. You see how backwards that is? Well, we think God exists to make us happy. That's not it. That's not the message of the scriptures. But we do have a God that loves us. We do have a God that made us in his image. We do have a God that's valued us. And we'll get into that. But he has to set God up as separate than his creation. That's really, really important in all of this. As he talks to these Greeks who are Stoics and Epicureans, he has to set up God as separate from his creation and self-sufficient. Now, here's what he's done in terms of humanity. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. So let's just go from where we've got now. So, we start, first, he started with a compliment. Second, he acknowledges there's a problem. Third, he says there's a solution. Fourth, he defines God. And fifth, he starts to talk about humanity and where humans come into this picture. And in this, he makes this great claim that out of one blood, every nation of men to dwell on the the face of the earth has been made. Now, this is really important because, you know, everybody, you know, wanted to think that their, you know, kind of ethnicity was, was higher than, you know, the Greeks wanted to look and say, well, we've got. We're superior, and we've got the superior culture. And yes, the Romans are kind of do- Romans are dominating the scene right now. But where did they get all that from? They got it from us, our higher culture that is better than we are, better than we are higher than these others. And so Paul goes ahead and starts to knock that, chip away at that too. And and really, what is being taught here is that there's one human race. Yes, there are many different nations. Yes, there are many different ethnicities. Yes, there are very many different people groups in our world, but there is how many races? One human race. And that's very important for our day and time. For our day and time, because we need to understand on that subject that the Bible does not talk about race the way we talk about it today. It talks about, you know, it talks about what it says here from one blood these common, you know, parents that we all share, that every human on the earth shares of Adam and Eve, are common first parents, is the biblical deal. And then it fully explains, you know, at the Tower of Babel, how we got all the different languages that we have today, you know, how people were scattered because they didn't fulfill that even command to, you know, go out, um, you know, into the earth. And they were, you know, having their own pride and building up, themselves to be like God. I mean, that's been the problem all along. You know, it's been the problem all along is that people have wanted to take God's place. But only he can rightly have that place. And so he's made all of these, you know, nations and and peoples. But he made it out of one blood, out of of one nation. And that's just extremely important in our message to the world today that is full of its you know, division and ethnic hatreds and, you know, language superiority and, you know, all of these different concepts uh, that go on throughout our world that, that pit people against people. But it really wasn't until, until you know, at, at least in the, in the West, in terms of, you know, Europe and what we have in the United States of America, it wasn't until the 1500s that you have this concept of race that we have talk about today. And that was only done to justify slavery. It was only done so that you could say, you know, there there was a, a people in the center that were higher than, and then you had deviations going out from that that were less than. And that the less than could even become less than human and then therefore could be subjected to all sorts of awful, wicked, you know, horrors, and it was okay. It was used to placate, you know, the the conscience of man who knew what he was doing was entirely and wholly evil, but yet it was extremely profitable, so he wanted to continue to do it. And so he had to have a philosophy. He had to have a a way of thinking that would justify himself. And so he created this concept of race. But it's an illusion it's an illusion, you know. And 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 you know, it's an interesting things when things go contrary to the word of God. It creates problems. It creates problems because in the evolutionary thought of the of the time was that you know, with these these different groups of people popped up all over the earth and were also you know different, and which you know fed into that and and helped um, you know give support to that idea of all of these different races and some being higher and some be Being lower. Well, you know, and then as DNA testing came about, and as that, you know, started to show, oh, wait, that's not exactly, you know, the spontaneous generation isn't exactly what we see here when we look at the DNA. And that picture, they don't have it right fully yet, but that picture becomes much closer to what the Bible teaches back in Genesis, you know, Genesis. Because it comes much closer to that. And so there's a, there's a, there are problems that happen when people go against what the Word of God says about human beings being created in His image, about there being one human race. You know, if, if you're going to take anything that the Bible says on that, you'd have to come. That's the conclusion of the matter on it. And yet, you know there are there are repercussions that devastate millions of lives when the truth of God is not followed, and that's a tangent you know that might sound like a tangent to what you know we're talking about here, but if you think about the days that we that we live in and how people seek to use the illusion of race as a divider of people to pit one against the other for their own you know, gains and for their own you know, means, whether those are financial or political or, or whatever, whatever motivation is there, we have the truth in the, in the Scripture and we can teach that truth and we can be united in Jesus Christ. We can, we can be united with all those who love the truth of God. But, you know, it's important that we as followers of Jesus learn to stand up as Paul is doing here and saying, hey, here's some things that you have that are true in your culture and in your traditions and in your beliefs. And here's some things that you have are false. And here is a better way. That's a prophetic, you know, powerful role that the fo- that followers of God have Always had from and, and you see it from Genesis to Revelation. The first place they are to have, they usually have that is among their own, you know, the prophets. You know, they're almost always going against the religious leaders, of you know, and the and the rulers of the, of Israel. You know, first and then there are also all these judgments to those, you know, to other nations. You know, even as Jonah didn't want to because he was afraid they would repent. And be saved, you know. He goes to he has to go to Nineveh and preach that what they have done has been evil, that their wickedness has come before God, has been recognized, and is going to be judged. But you know, we've gotten you know so afraid of of ruffling anybody's feathers that we won't make any noise as cultures are destroyed. We won't make any noise as people quietly descend to hell in the masses. Because we're terrified that somebody will look at us and say, that wasn't loving. That's what we're most afraid of. Somebody will look at us and say, you're not loving. Well, how loving is it to let people in by the masses quietly descend to hell? How loving is that? And you would have to argue it's not very loving. So this is what he does here. And he says, and he gives this, this relationship, he says that God's determine their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwelling so they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. So now this is a difference here because in their ideas about the gods and all the gods that they had that the gods are, are distant and you don't want to get the gods angry because they just kind of play with humanity. You know, like you would flick an ant, they'd flick a human. So you want to appease them, but they're distant. And so he says, though, God is not distant. He is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And so here he does something that's kind of cool because he knows that, you know, knowledge is power. And he he knows He's obviously read some of their, some of their poets and, and what they've said. And he sees, you know, it's not just one poet. As some of your poets have said, it's a, he says, you know, he's got this theme that he has found in their literature. And he can use that, for we are also his offspring. And therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Now, again, you have to put yourself in the minds of the Epicureans and the Stoics, of the Greeks, just in general, and put yourself in the city of Athens where there are idols everywhere, where there are temples to all of these different gods that all these people are following and Paul says here we should not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone something shaped by art and man's devising truly these times of ignorance got overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent wow he's saying you know, all that you've done here all the you know the majority of your art and your craftsmen and what they've built It's it's worthless. It's accomplished nothing. Because the true God isn't like that. True God isn't like that. And then he gives them a call to action. He talks about the mercy of God. These times of ignorance, God overlooked, and there can be some debate about what is you know, meant by that, and are people were people accountable, and this and that. We know God is, is is just. We know He's merciful. We know He's fair, not based on how we define that, but on how He defines that. But now commands all men everywhere to repent, and so He gives this call to action. Like God is near to you. He's not how you thought He was, but you can turn from. That's really what repent means. He's. You know he's not. He is giving a very powerful message. I mean, it's not like a shouting. I don't think he's like shouting hellfire and brimstone by any means. But he's giving them this message in a progression of of logic, and and the, and the logical thing to do if you've been taking God as something other than He truly is, is to throw that off, to turn from that, and to take Him as He truly is. So He calls them to to turn. From that, and there's a reason. And this is a warning because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. Now, remember, we've already got the foundation that he's been preaching to them, Jesus and the resurrection. And so he's saying to them that Jesus Christ is going, there's going to come a day where Jesus Christ is going to judge the world. And he's going to do so in righteousness. You need to be ready. And then here's a, the final proof that you need. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. The proof is in the resurrection of Jesus. That's his final you know, deal. So that message that he's been preaching about Jesus and the resurrection in the synagogue and in the marketplace, and that he gives here, you know, he doesn't move from that central theme. about Jesus... And the resurrection. I mean, if he's talking about resurrection, obviously he's also telling them about the crucifixion, right? Where Jesus paid for our sins. But it's about this issue of resurrection because now he's calling into question all of their thoughts and ideas about the afterlife. What happens to a person when they die? And while philosophically... The Stoics and Epicureans, you know, could have their, you know, somewhat, the Epicureans say there's no afterlife. The Stoics say just for a few, you know, just for some people. But you know that in the human, there has to be a, that, that can't be just accepted without question. You know that in the human mind and in the human heart, there has to be those moments of quiet where it's like, and certainly there has to be more than just this than just these few years here on this earth. There has to be something more. There has to be a a, a, different, a, perp, a bigger purpose. The, those questions have to linger in the heart. So there's, there's 32 gives us the results. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However... Some men joined in him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Orpagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So there's some mixed results here. Some just mock and say, you know, this is crazy talk. Paul, what has happened to you? We don't know, but this is crazy talk. That's that's first. The second is, we others say, you know, we'll hear you again on this. We want, we want to hear more. They're not ready to believe and to accept it fully, but they are, their curiosity is piqued. They're going to dig in a little bit more and, and hear more of what is said about this. And then others, in the third category, they join and believe and become followers of Jesus Christ. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So those are the, you know, what we call them mixed results. You know, the first result makes us sad. The people who mock. Now, maybe some of those won't always mock, but probably some of them will. And that makes us sad. Rightfully so. Shouldn't make us angry. But it should make us sad. We'd be angry that they were deceived, we'd be angry that they believed a law, but we're not like angry at them, we're just sad for them of what they miss out on. The second group, you know, we're hopeful about. We want to continue to pursue. Say, hey, they want to know more, but we need to be faithful to follow up with them and try to help them to understand more. And the third, it's like, okay, you know, it's so it says they believe, also, so they join them. Like they, you know, there's, so there's going this, I mean, this process of discipleship, of growth. You know, a, a church is going to be formed here. Uh, you know, and so that's, that's what needs to happen. And when I, when I say church is going to be formed here, I mean a, a collection of believers is going to be formed here. That's what we're talking about. And so that's all uh, beautiful and good. We have to acknowledge that there are going to be mixed results. And we see that pretty much everywhere the gospel is preached in the New Testament. You know, you, you're not going to find like, and every single person. You know, but, you know, here's the hopeful thing. You're, not, you're usually not going to find every single person rejected. I mean, you know, you're not, you're not going to find um, everybody accepted, but you're not going to find everybody rejected. So, if, you know, if, if we faithfully throughout our lives share Jesus with people, there are going to be some people who accept that and believe and become part of God's family. But we have to be okay with, With the reality, and not okay, we just have to accept it. We just have to accept the reality that not everybody we share with is going to be happy that we shared it with them. We have to accept that reality. And you can't let those people stop you from reaching the people who will want to know more and the people who are ready to believe. You can't let that fear of rejection. What if Paul says, well, I know some of them are going to mock me, so therefore I'm not going to share the message. Well, then if, if he has that attitude, it's at the loss of the people in the second and the third groups. And even if there's only one in that third group who believes, what a terrible loss for Paul to be afraid of the mocking of the majority and that one doesn't get to hear I think sometimes we think about that all wrong because again we our greatest fears is is that people are going you know reject and mock and call us names or whatever, or that we won't have an answer to a question, and we may appear foolish, and you know, we have those fears as well, but we we see in here. You know, Paul has taken the time to think about the city that he's in and to think about the people that are there and think about how he can communicate the good news of Jesus to them in a way that is going to cause them to think about their presuppositions, their assumptions, their, their ideas. And he does so in a skillful way. Uh, and, and we can learn from that, and I hope we do learn from that you know, and we also have to acknowledge that you know in this in this city that we live in, we have a lot of different little subsets of people, and you know there 's different assumptions in that in those subsets you know in, in, in one subset people may largely believe that there is a god, in another subset you may have a group of people who or kind of ambivalent about that, or another little group where they don't think that there is. Um, and, and you may have one group that thinks God is a certain way and interacts with us in a certain way, and another group that, you know, think that he interacts with us in a completely different way than that. Well, you know, we need to, we need to know uh, and have some ideas about how those different groups of people, you know, think, so that we can be effective in answering you know, them where they are. You know, Paul knows that. At the same time, we'll say Paul also knows what he has to know. Jesus and the resurrection. You know, and so you know, that's always a great starting point. Um, I mean, the more you know, the, the, the better and more effective you can be and the more helpful you can be. But if you just know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and, and rose from the dead, and you know he's changed your life, you can at least share your testimony, you can share your story, and then maybe there's questions that come up through that that you don't fully know the answer to. You don't fully know how to answer a particular person's philosophy or, or religious tradition and a question that comes up from that. But there's never been so much information available of then how to answer that question. So don't be afraid of being asked something you don't know and just say, "Hey, I don't know be honest. I don't know the answer to that right here and now. Let me go do some work and then I and then let's have another conversation about that." And then be faithful to do that. You know, there's there's no excuse to be lazy now because the information is available either in someone that you know, someone in this church already knows the answer to that question and can help you, you know, process through that and, and be able to give a good answer, or we can open up a book that does answer that question. Either the information is, is there. At this point, it's hard to find questions that followers of Jesus haven't already wrestled with and come up with really good answers to. Pretty hard to do that at this point. We've got a lot of time and experience in doing that. But in this, I want us to understand, throughout the entirety of it all, Paul's goal is not to win arguments. He's not seeking just to win arguments. He's seeking to win people. You know, and that's why he doesn't, you know, he doesn't come out here Guns blazing about at the beginning and saying You know, foolish people of Athens, how could you be so crazy to believe the mess that you believe? You're evil, wicked sinners, you're all gonna go to hell. Repent and believe in Jesus. That's not his approach. And I could have made that sound a lot worse than I just did. But that's not that's not you know, he starts with here's what I you know, here's Here's something complimentary. Here's what I see in your culture. Here's where the references in your own culture that are asking these questions and giving clues to answers. But here's the fullness of it. And here's the fullness of it in Jesus Christ. And yes, he does have to tell them that they're wrong. Yes, he does have to confront them on their their ideas that are contrary to the true and living God. But he does that, I think, with the least offense possible as opposed to seeking to do it with the most offense possible. Because he's not just trying to win the argument. He wants to see them believe in Jesus and become followers of Jesus. And so that's where our mindset has to change. Especially if you're, a, you know, this changes over time, I think, for a lot of people too. But especially, you know, younger, you know, in college or right out of college, you know, it can be all about winning the argument. Why, well, well, you know, you know it's like the person didn't agree, but at the end of the day, I know I smoked them. Well, what does that do? And you still see that, you know, that, that mentality is out there. I mean, that mentality even gets into churches and into people who, you know, are quote-unquote evangelists. And it's a, it's a terrible mentality to have. A terrible mentality to have. We want to see people follow the Lord. So let's take this message to heart. And and the other thing that I would say with it that I think is important, because we talk about that cultural influence, Paul knows the the culture because he's looking for ways to share the gospel. And that's different than knowing the culture just because I want to be entertained. Or just because I want to participate in the sin of my culture. You know, we have a lot of that. We have a lot of that. Well, if I'm going to reach them, i got to sin with them kind of mentality. I mean, it might be said quite so boldly, but a lot of times that's the heart. And the heart really actually isn't to reach them. That's the guys to give permission to participate and sinful things. We've got to be careful not to buy into that law. There has to be a a different approach as we approach culture. But remember that our culture is powerful and that if we are not actively considering how our culture influences us, even in the subtle things, if we are not actively aware We end up living lives that um, kind of miss out on the purpose that God has given for us. We end up just kind of going let along with the flow, you know. And and we have to be willing at times. We have to be willing to swim upstream, and that's harder. You know, that's that's more difficult. It's a lot easier just to go with the flow. It's hard to swim upstream. It's hard to go against, go the different direction than everybody else is going. And what we see over time in this culture is just like these waves of waves of waves. And what we've seen um, in this is, you know, kind of like these, these waves of, of things that used to be agreed were sins, and, and now they aren't anymore. And each wave has a new set of things that are no longer sins. And that the only sin is to call something sin, that becomes the sin in our society. That the sin is that you can't call sin, sin. So there's, there's that aspect of it. But look for these things in culture. I'll give you one example. And this one drove me crazy because I've been going to Mexico at this point. Um, you know, I've been there like 10 times. And we go to this place that I haven't, I don't think I'd been before if I'd been maybe once. But I didn't, we didn't go through the town and I didn't know the history. Of it at all, and nobody told me anything about it. Place called Jenga, and I'm like, and it's a sugarcane. It's low, you know. You go down. Um, it's not in the mountains. So go down, 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 and there's all this sugarcane. Place called Jenga, and, you know, and they're like, oh, do you know? Do you know how Jenga got its name? And this place got its name. I'm like, you know, no. Like, know. Well, there's a statue here, and there was a there was a slave. Um, there were slaves in Mexico too, with the North Atlantic slave trade, and all throughout, you know, Central and South America. Um, so the, the, slave, the slave was named Janga, and one day um, in kind of a public area, he was so angry at his chains, and he was a man of a lot of strength, but he ended up he ended up breaking the chains. You know, and had like freed himself to a certain extent, and the people in the area were so moved by it, moved by the emotion. They weren't Stoics; <laughs> they were they were moved by the emotion of the situation, and to, and that became the name changed in over time, changed to his name, Jenga. His name came to mean broken chains, came synonymous with that, and it was the first. You know, free town in all of all of the Americas it was the very first one. And I'm sitting there going. I didn't know this. Nobody has told me this." you talk about you talk about just, I mean, like loving a softball to knock out of the park when it comes to an illustration in a culture to share Jesus with people. Because we've all been under the the bondage of slavery, but we weren't strong enough to break our own chains and couldn't be because it's sin and we all have sin and but Jesus did that for us at the cross. I mean, it couldn't be any easier, people. And it's like, oh, hadn't thought about that. You know, and it's like it's, it's it's you know, but there are things like that all over the place where they're just they're softballs. I mean they're easy. They're easy to knock out of the park. Just lobbed up there to you. But they're there. So look, they're there in the, in, in the music and in the movies and in the television and everything else. They're there. They're there. Now, our motivations have to be right in seeking those things out. But they're there. They're there. They're there. You know, use those. Use those. And um, man, there's just... Great, great opportunities, great opportunities. So with that, we live in this place, the city of Athens, and there's people that this week that will, if they're shared with, mock, want to hear more, and believe. One of those three. But there's probably people, that's going to happen Somebody's going to do that. There are followers of Jesus who will share. Some will be mo- some will mock. There'll be a response. Some will want to see hear more. And people will believe in Jesus this week here in the city. Whether we get to participate in any of that, in any of those three, ultimately is a decision and a and a matter of priority. But that's that's our reality. We have that opportunity before us. So let's pray that the Lord will help us uh, to do that and to encourage others um, in that as well. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your many blessings to us. Help us to think wisely. Help us to think um, as missionaries. Help us to live as missionaries. Help us to live on mission with you, dear Jesus. Help us not to have the mentality that it's somebody else's job in some other place. But help us co- to consider how we can reach our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers with your love and with your gospel. Help us to be bold. Help us to know that, Lord, we're not responsible for people's responses. But, Lord, we are responsible to love people enough to share your gospel with them. But Lord, I pray that that would come out of our worship, even come out of our worship that we have in this time, as we take the bread and the cup, that we would be so enamored and so in love with your son that we just can't help but to tell others about our Savior and our King. So help us in that, Lord Jesus, we pray. In your precious name we ask it.